What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vita Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode 145, I'm speaking with Beza Clarkson, partner at Sapphire Partners. Beza was born in London and currently lives in Austin in the US and leads Sapphire Partners Investments in venture capital funds in the US and internationally, and is widely recognized as one of the most prominent LPs, limited partners, thanks to a decade plus time in the industry and initiatives such as Open LP. Learn about Beza Sunrise in London and then Boston with a British father who was a professor, an American mother who was the first in a family to attend college. Questions I love hearing Beza's transparent views on include, the relationship with money growing up, what made her decide not to pursue an initial career interest in politics, how Sapphire curated their LP arm from the ground up, and how to build a brand as a new firm. And we dive into various aspects of the VC ecosystem today, including what should be the right size of VC funds, geographical and thematic diversification, investing in emerging managers, and the key criteria to factor in, the value of pre-marketing and relationship building, and how many fund ones graduate to fund three and beyond and why that matters. And as always, we cover areas you may not have heard before, including the five Hall of Fame LPs Beza would love to be in a room with to learn from, her personal biggest learning to date, and the announcement of Sapphire's new Emerging Manager Program with CalSTRS, the California State Teachers Retirement Fund, one of the biggest pools of retirement savings in the world. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Beza Clarkson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I am pleased to do this. We've had a number of our mutual friends on the show and they've all highly recommended you. Why don't we start with some fun facts to set the scene? Where were you born and where do you live now? I was born in London, England, and now I live in Austin, Texas. Wow, I did not know that. That's so interesting. And from a work perspective, what was your first job and what do you do now? Well, the first job that I paid taxes on was being a grocery, sort of a health food, pre-Whole Foods type store. I was a grocery bagger. So I still am very opinionated on how you're supposed to stack your groceries in a bag. I have to admit. (laughs) That's great. That's so cool. And how would you describe your role now at Sapphire? Well, my role now is, so Sapphire has a couple different investing strategies and I joined Sapphire to launch the LP strategy, which means I spend my time investing in early stage venture funds in the US, Europe, and Israel, along with the rest of my team. Mm, very cool. And Beezer, as you know, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer. I wonder, is a high flyer you know who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? You know, I think I'm going to nominate my sister. I My son is now 15 and we're going through the, how do you even start thinking about college? And I think it's way too soon, but the world seems to think it's the time. And it just I was just reflecting on how integral she 
she was to me understanding how the world works. And I don't know how she figured it out. We're close in age. She's just under two years older than me. And I know the world she grew up in. And it wasn't like everyone had all the guidebooks out and explained everything. But she somehow found her way to a great school and figured out how all this stuff works. And because of her figuring out, she's just, she's always been there to sort of help me through all the different steps and somehow always managed to do it first, but then also open the doors. And I think that's pretty awesome. That's great. I'm so glad you've given a personalized high flyer. Generally, it's people who mention colleagues or, or GPs or LPs. So I'm glad you've got someone different that you mentioned. Thank you. I'd love to wind back the clock, please, and talk about your sunrise, as I call it, your childhood. I think there might be listeners who might not be as aware of it. You mentioned London, England. Did you spend much time there? Sadly, not as much as I'd like. We moved to Boston when I was probably about three or four. So my father was British and my mother's American. So I've carried two passports, but we moved to Boston and he ta- he was a professor. And so he was teaching out in the Boston at some different universities. And so I grew up outside of Boston in the suburbs. And and how would people describe, I spoke to Sheil prior to this, and he said Beez is a hustler. She will hustle and she knows how to get in touch with people. Were you always like that as a kid? Were you always a hustler and were you always just getting it done? Yes, I was. I was de- I'm the child of two immigrant families. And I think, I don't know if there's a DNA on the, my mother's family came through Ellis Island. He's got to get it done. And my father's family fled World War II and moved to, he was British Canadian and they moved back to Canada and it's just a little bit of like, yeah, you just figure it out and like get up and go. And and I've always been somebody, I don't know if people remember this. I'm, I'm jumping a little bit forward in time, but like Sheryl Sandberg, very famous CEO of Facebook. She used to have these dinner parties for women at her house. And I was always so upset that I was never invited. I mean, I was nobody. So there's no reason why she would invite me. But I was always just very upset that I wasn't invited. And then I was like, well, why am I waiting for someone else to invite me to their party? I should just throw my own damn party. And so like, just it, that was just very much the ethos in my household. Like, why are you waiting for someone else to do it? You should just, just go do it. That's so interesting. I feel the thing I do there is if I come across someone I don't know on LinkedIn or Twitter or at an event, I will hustle to get to know them. And and that's my challenge is like getting to know a new person. And I think in venture, there's so many folks that just keep popping up that you've never heard of. And they're like, oh, who is that person? How come I don't know them? That and I, I don't remember who said this, but is I'm going to muddle the phrase. I should have looked this up. But there was something about doing the work itself is like 50% of it and just showing up. And I've always been like, God, that's a low bar. You mean, if you just show up and do the work and you're already halfway there, like, great. Like I've got that. There's a lot of things I don't have, but right. So if you want to meet someone on LinkedIn, like show up and it matters to people and inviting people and breaking bread with people matters. And the older I get, the more I realize humanity is just incredibly consistent. And that's a wonderful. Absolutely. And how would, how would your high school teachers describe your personality? If, if I would ask them, what was Beza like in high school? What were you like? I think I was exactly the same. I don't think I've changed at all. Like okay. <laughs> when we moved to Austin, I unpacked a bunch of photos from when I was little. And I was like, yeah, I remember that. I feel exactly the same way about this situation. So I think I was exactly like this. I, I read voraciously. I was a huge reader. I read less now. Now I do podcasts, but only because you, you can move while you're doing it. I like to connect with folks. I don't, high school is not my happy time. I, I was definitely mm-hmm. somebody who enjoyed college more than high school. But I was, I wouldn't say I was sporty, but I was athletic. I played field hockey and I danced. So I did ballet for years and years and I did field hockey for years and years and I loved it. 
I really love field hockey. I'm sort of sad that it's a hard older sport, but no, it's exactly the same. Like, I don't think I've changed. <laughs> yeah. And and I'm always interested in asking this question because in our industry, we talk so much about money and, and finances and, and returns. What was your relationship with money like growing up? You say that. So one of the things my father taught was tax. And so I'm the kid. I'm not a tax expert. Like he wrote textbooks. Yeah. I did not. But but I intuited some very important things, which is most of the time when you want to figure out why something's happened in a business, like go look at the financials and where in the incentives and how they get driven. And one of my father's great skills was that he was a wonderful teacher. I never took his class, but I read some of his reviews. And he was able to connect the dots on some of these things for people and really explain it. And I think, I just think that you sort of, you sort of breathe that air and you sort of take it in. So a lot of times you don't understand what's going on, you kind of go back to it. So that was, I know that's an odd answer to your relationship with money, but it was kind of how it was. And he, he both, he was a professor and a consultant and he both made and lost a lot of money. So one of the other journeys that I saw him go on was the fact that you could recreate yourself and that stories aren't mm. permanent. And he made some pretty, for a very smart person, some kind of naive business decisions on occasion. So you also realize that just because you're smart in one area, like he was book smart, but not street smart. Whereas my mother was much more street smart. Mm. Not that she also wasn't very smart, but she was, you know, the first first person in her family to go to college. Like she just grew up at a at a much different ecosystem than my father, who grew up in a family of PhDs and and other graduate degrees professors. So she just she always sort of had a better sense of like we'll just get this done this way. It was definitely a sense of how do you explain the world around you in a business context, but you you need to understand the motivations to figure out how to get through it. And money is a byproduct, not. It was not the only metric. So when you live your life, yes, having money can facilitate things, but it was not the point of it in a certain way. I don't, I'm not doing a mm. terribly great job explaining it because we didn't talk about it a lot. Mm. No, but it sounds from, like you've really reflected on it. Well, my parents got divorced when I was 13 and it was a very different world growing up on child support that my father paid versus living in a, in a sort of, what do you call the nuclear family? It was it was a very, my, my sister, my mother and I, so it was a very strong female household, which I really yeah. enjoyed. And now I have a son and I'm like, oh, and now I get to do the basketball games and these other things that like were not happening in my household because we just didn't do them. But they're not, so it's just, it's just nice. I get the, I get both sides. Um, anyway, right. I, yeah. that's a long-winded answer to your question. No, I like it. I appreciate the candor. And if you fast forward to when you were 18, I feel like 18 is an age where you've got some understanding of the world and some understanding of yourself. What was success or what was fulfillment? Like, what did you want to do with your life? I always wanted to get up and explore. So I was living in the Boston area and I went to school in Connecticut. And my thinking then, I'd have, it's amazing to me now that my son's concept of space and travel is so wildly different. Like he does not blink an eye in the thought that he'll go to school that will involve taking a plane. But that was just something that like wasn't even in our vocabulary when I was growing up. So I was like, well, what's a three-hour driving radius? Right. But the idea was not to stay local, but that to me was far away. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, I can go like I can get on a plane and go somewhere. And then the whole world just exploded. And you're like, oh, this is awesome. And I'm actually kind of surprised I haven't lived outside of the U.S. more than more than now. It just always was more complicated than I thought to, to achieve it. But that's sort of the empty nesting goal is to be able to spend more time in different geographies. 
Yeah, it's so cool. And I, I'm sure in your current role, you probably get a chance to travel a bit and, and meet I do, but managers. Yeah. I am unfortunately the master of the, like, let me be on a plane for 20 hours on the ground for five and then fly back. Like I'll do a oh, lot wow. of like half day trips or day trips to different parts of Europe. So my big goal, when my son's in college is to actually spend a week or two weeks be crazy, It'll live large. Right? Yeah, yeah. And and then talk about how, how you decided your college degree. I think trustee on LinkedIn tells me you studied a Bachelor of Political, like International Politics. Is that is that right? Yes, it was technically I was a government major, but I got a certification. I forget what they called it, but it was an international policy thing, which came with language and history. Like you had to sort of check a number of boxes. You know, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to major in in college. And I said, well, why don't I just go back to the first course that caught my eye? And it was a class on world politics. And I think the inter, I think it actually ends up working really well for why I enjoy being an LP, but I was always curious about the macro and how do these things interact and engage. And there was a large component of economics to it. So it wasn't just who are the geopolitical players, but why are they engaging and how does this work and understanding the different systems that people were part of. And there was a phenomenal professor there teaching it. And so I was like, all right, check. And then I was trying to figure out with certificate, how many things could I shove into it without having to declare a double major? And that was the best that I got because I enjoy having a lot of flexibility of how I choose to do things, but I wanted to cover a lot of, a lot of ground. And if you declare a double major, they became more strict in what you had to do. But I got everything shy of like one class to be a double major in econ and government. But the econ major wouldn't have let me do languages and history. So it was, I was like, meh, do I need any, like, I did everything else, but like, I think one econometrics class. Mm. And then did you do an MBA straight after that or was MBA later in your career? No, I was first the very stereotypical investment banker. And then just because I wasn't finished being stereotypical, I was in a strategy consultant. And then I went to business school. <laughs> I just needed that. So you ticked every box. <laughs> <laughs> ticked every box. I know. How do you how do you look back on that time now? What would you say was your biggest learning from that time in Morgan Stanley? And 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 I think you even worked at HP for a number of years. I did. Oh, their learnings were really different. So Morgan Stanley was. It's so interesting. I had a really hard time because I was not, I did not prepare myself. I didn't know a debit from a credit, which I'm very famous for saying for that, which was not ideal to say the least. And I ended up joining an incredibly quantitative group because it was the most interesting to me. So I have an Achilles heel of being like, well, this idea is really interesting. I'm sure we can figure it out. And then I get there and I'm like, oh, this is so much harder than I thought it was going to be. So that was, I worked incredibly hard and I learned a lot and my group was probably a little bit annoyed that I wasn't stronger quantitatively, but I was doing international project financing and it was just fascinating. Like, how do you do a power plant? How do you do, we did a nickel mine. We did a bunch of things that I think were probably neat. There's dealing with emissions. It was fascinating that we worked with the IMF and the IFC and the World Bank along with IPOs and roadshows. And I look back on my friends that I met in my analyst class at Morgan Stanley, there were 240 of us. I'm still texting on an, I work with one of them. So one of them is the CEO of Sapphire. I am mm-hmm. like pretty much a daily texter with my two roommates then. So even though I never aspired to be an investment banker again, and I apologize to Morgan Stanley, I don't think I was a terribly good analyst. Um, I just made the, the the people that I met that were really extraordinary. So, and it, it, was, it was funny, we were talking before about politics and I had gone into my high, my high school into college career thinking I really wanted to be secretary of state. 
and between some externships I did in college at the IFC and being at Morgan Stanley, I was like, I think I need to stay in the private markets because my ability to be effective and drive decision-making will be, it's, it's much more linear. And what you see going on in some of the public policy negotiations, I was like, oh, I don't know, that that might not be my cup of tea. <laughs> I might not be able to. <laughs> I, I feel like I was saying pre-recording that our previous guest, Michael Kim from Sindana, spoke about his political influences, and I think his dad was a diplomat. I, I, I'm sure you've both had some interesting conversations on this topic because you both had that influence early on, but you're both now LPs in, in different different ways. You know, shockingly, I did not know this about him. I, I did know some of the other things, but I'm excited to have that conversation with him. It's a wonderful world. And I don't know, we can talk about the the rise of the State Department and, and some of the other challenges in it recently. But but yes, but I was like, oh, if I really enjoy the intersection of business and finance, this feels linear to me. And you can do a lot of, you can get a lot of things accomplished in the world in the private sector that not that you can't in the public, it's just a very different road. And I don't know if I'm as good at that road. Do you, do you feel visa? We're jumping around a bit here. Like being an LP is kind of like a diplomat. You're you're meeting a lot of new people. You're influencing. You're negotiating, but you're working yeah. with some of them. But you're trying to get to know all of them. Yeah. Do no. You if you went through it, yes. No. Totally. I think I can map out things that I that I like, and I you try to find the overlap of like what you like and what you're good at to build your career. You can do the what you like and what you're not good at, which I did as an investment banker. And it's really hard, but you, one can do it. It's just better if your strengths align. And they can apply in a number of different set, like number of different ways. But I think being an LP, and I didn't join Sapphire until I was 40. And I share that because I have friends who sort of knew who they were going to be so much earlier. And you can see just how it facilitates their trajectory, where I was like, oh, no, I think I finally realized how all these parts come together later, but I don't think I could be who I am if I didn't have these parts. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but yes, but there's definitely aspects of being an LP. I love the macro and the, what's, we invest in different international markets and how is that playing out and what does that mean? And then there is a lot of spending time talking to people. I mean, there's, you don't have to, there's a lot of LPs that do far less of this. One one of the things we talk so much about in as VCs is the pathways into VC, and there's people who've come either worked at, as an operator, or they worked as a consultant or a banker, or they've come from random pathways like music or sport or or what have you. And and it's always interesting how their DNA gets influenced by that. I think a lot of VCs, their diligence process or their founder interactions are very different depending on where they've come from. Is that the same in LP land? Given you've got these mirrored of experiences across financial services, politics, consulting, does that influence your initial interactions with fellow LPs, but also perspective GPs? That's such an interesting question. I haven't thought about that. I think we created Sapphire's LP arm from the ground up, right? So we started with a clean sheet of paper. And I think therefore, I had probably undue influence. But if you're, if I was to be hired into an endowment or a foundation, I think I think the, the the business corpus would drive a lot of how they go to market. And individuals can obviously change things. Like David Swenson was very famous at Yale for creating some new things. But I think you're in service to the organization. So there's only, I think that just has to be a compelling part of how people do and why they do. I think we've had, this is why when people ask me about my my relationship with Sapphire, I'm like, this is my home, right? Like I get mm -hmm. to create this. And when you create something, it's 
it's not as entrepreneurial maybe as starting a, a separate company and taking it public, but you're like, why? Like, yeah, this, this gets to be where I get to express how I think it works. So it's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. and, and let's go into it. Tell us, how did you come across Sapphire for the first time? Well, so so part of my analyst class, but not in my group exactly, was a, was a fellow named Nino. And Nino is the CEO of Sapphire. And so he is very good at keeping in touch with people. And so when he and I left Morgan Stanley, at he and I lived sort of parallel lives. Like he went to Stanford and I went to G HBS and like he did his, his different banking and I did other investing, but we always sort of stayed in touch. And so when he was looking around at how to start the LP arm, I was at a different venture firm. I was at DFJ and doing their network of venture funds, which had, it was more about GP Merton. DFJ would literally join the GP of another fund. So it wasn't an LP investment, but there would be a GP commitment. And so we were talking, helping him, I was helping, you know, think about what he was doing. And then he came back and was like, well, you just need to come and do this with me. And Again, the chance to come and start something new where you could be like, oh, here's how I've always thought it could be done. And I haven't seen it in the market. I'm a super sucker for that. I've, I've <laughs> always, yeah, people are like, why do you do things? I'm like, oh, because I had a question and I wanted to go figure out the answer. And then I, yes, and then I wander off and go figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So, so interesting. Like you can kind of be a founder, but within a bigger, bigger institution, right? Maybe a good place to get into the Sapphire story is actually unpacking Sapphire first, because I know you've got a few different business arms. You've got a VC mm -hmm. arm and then you've got the LP arm. So do you want to just give us a quick overview of Sapphire as a company? Sure. So Sapphire overall is, I guess we call it a venture investment firm. And we manage about $11 billion of capital. And of that, the majority, the gross majority of that goes into the large direct investing effort that happens. And there is a separate team, separate investment committee. We're very friendly. We like each other as people. We sit in the same offices, but it's a separate investment group. I, so I'm not voting on whether or not they should invest in a growth stage fund and vice versa. The LP arm started about 2011, 2012. So we started later and also has a separate team and a separate pool of capital. And we get like, we're all friendly, but we're different. And we manage of the 11 billion, we now have 3.6 billion of assets under management. And our team is about six people total. Sometimes it flexes up or down by a person, but the LP team is pretty concentrated and we do that purposefully. The growth team is probably, oh, I could be off by a headcount or two, but call it 20 to 25 people. Mm. And then talk about how does one, like, LPs say this to VCs all the time is build a track record, build your brand, yeah. get build a relationship, and then we'll invest in your second fund or third fund. Or, I mean, you, you've started investing in, a, in first funds, which we'll get to shortly. How, how did you go about building the Sapphire brand in the ecosystem for GPs to learn about you or fellow LPs to go, yeah, speak to Biza. She's really good at her job. What, what, what does that look like in LP land? So we launched it. And I, I mean, I'll be very transparent. Like we were like, well, nobody... People know of us as a direct investor. So if we want people to know that it's sort of a new product line to make a sort of regular company analogy, I looked around at people that I thought were smart at getting getting information out there and said, asked questions. And I went out and I just talked to a bunch of people. And I was like, how, how, how does one do this? Like, how do you become new to the world? So I would say I went on a sort of learning journey. And it was very... So it... it one of the things I was thinking of was I need to make sure people know who we are and what we do and what are the best practices that exist. I don't need to recreate a wheel. And there's not a lot of help. And then how did VCs do it? Because they're the closest analogy to your point. And VCs were tweeting and blogging and social media and going to conferences and speaking. And I looked around and I was like, well, there. this was 2013, 14. 
there was there was onesie twosies like Chris Duvo shout out to him as an early blogger at Super LP and occasionally you'd see people on stage but it was really rare and I was like well okay like this is the best practice in venture land there is not only a dearth of LP speaking there's a dearth of information around how LPs work and if I know people and I'm having a hard time figuring out who they are and what they do the average person would have a really hard time Hence why we launched OpenLP to sort of provide a just a open forum for community and a safe space for all the LPs to share because it's RIA friendly and do all these things. Um, and then I was like, all right, I learned this in my DFJ time, which is if you want to be at a conference, just go help them organize a panel. So you just mm. do the same thing. And mm. you're like, hey, like conference organizers are busy. I will roll up and say, and I was doing this in DFJ for different reasons. And I was like, I'll help you organize a panel. You're missing the LP voice. And so there's just a lot of like showing up and doing the work and we blogged and we tweeted. And one of the things I think people are very clear about this, don't pick up some of these activities unless you're willing to do it for a very long time. You are a mm -hmm. prime example, right? I'm sure you've lived this and I would have called you back in the time and you'd have told me this, like pick the, pick the media that speaks to you because you're going to have to keep doing it. And I, so I worked with a bunch of folks who gave me this advice over and over. And I was like, all right, we as a team and me as an individual on this team have to pick things that we're willing to do consistently for a very long time. It's so it's so interesting because I feel if I double click on that, it's almost like a lot of actually VC said this to me before I went into this recording. I said, Bees is coming on the show. What questions do you want to ask? And she said, well, ask her, how does she think about personal branding? Because LPs don't really too many podcasts and Bees is unique. And, and we mentioned Michael Kim and there's a few others who've, I'd say probably over the last two years, really ramped up their public persona. How do you think about that for yourself? Because the flip side of this is the second this episode comes out, you'll probably get a lot of cold messages and DMs and people are like, oh, we're a new fund manager. Can we talk to you? What is that balance between getting yourself out there, but then managing your calendar and managing your energy? As evidenced by the struggle we had to schedule this, I don't balance it very well, but I also think it's part and parcel. So you go into it knowing it's going to happen and you just try to manage the, with grace and gratitude that people want to talk to you and how do you manage that? So again, I'll just seek advice from people and it's I tend to be the tip of the spear, I would say, from some of this activity for the team. But there is, a, we have a great team and everyone has their different strengths. My, my colleague, Nate, doesn't do as many podcasts, but he's fantastic. And so, you know, and my colleague, Laura, does also wonderful speaking. So we're not, I'm not the only one. It just seems to work a little, because I started this before they came, it's a little bit more of that flywheel. Mm. And I do think it's funny, pre-COVID, I think we'd actually gotten to a spot where there are more LPs speaking and doing it right. because I I. And then everything kind of went sideways for all of the COVID reasons. And now in a recession, it's I don't know, technically in a recession or not, but people are very, very busy with their day jobs. Mm. So I think there's been a bit of a retraction, but I think people sometimes just need to know that it's going to be okay. Like I've told people tons of time. I'm like, I will come on the podcast with you. I will co-write with you. Like it is, you'll know this better than I would. There is some percentage of folks that create and everybody else is a consumer. And this is consistent mm. on like any medium you pick. So I also think it's a fallacy to assume there's no data that suggests everyone's going to be a creator, but you can still show people that it's possible to be done if you want to do it. And some people's institutions don't let them do it because the focus should be on something else. So there's a lot of reasons why you don't see as many LPs, but one of the reasons why I try to continue to show up and bring people along is that I really think there could be more. And that sometimes it's just getting over that, that jump. And that a lot of VCs do it because they feel they have to as their job. I don't think LPs feel like they 
have to as part of their job, but but I welcome their engagement because I learn every time. I listen to every LP I can hear speak because everybody's viewpoints are different and it's fascinating. Mm. And, and I'd recommend listeners check out Origins, the podcast that you co-host with Nick, right? With Nick Charles, yeah. Yeah, which is awesome. Like I've been listening to that for years and it's so good. Like it's open LP on audio. Like it's just got a recording around open LP. Was well, a little more indie than yours. I appreciate it. <laughs> Nick and I joke around. We're like, we we're trying to professionalize. Hence the new microphone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did. I did notice that actually. The most recent recording from the guy from GC sounded so different. It must have been with the new microphone. So yeah, it's it was working. new microphones, and that <laughs> that we were able to do in person. Ah, so, okay. So the audio person in the room made sure that we didn't mess it up because when Nick and I are left to our own devices, it's not as good. So we've. We've gotten that feedback and we're working on it. So thank you. <laughs> but thank you for listening. Okay. I am keen. I realize we've spent a good chunk of this time getting context in yourself. I think it's important that we talk about the VC landscape and, and there's been some recent announcements that you've made, which are really exciting. Maybe a good place to set the scene, Beza, is give us a sense of, you mentioned earlier at Macro and you've been in VC for well, I mean, been around the VC game well over a decade now. Maybe the first part to cover is, one of the things that came up again in my research was the right size of VC funds. I think over the last five years, we've seen them, probably five, seven years, we've seen them balloon out where later stage VCs were coming into earlier rounds, rounds were getting marked up, and VCs were raising new funds every 18, 24 months and constantly getting up and life just became easy. And I think that reality check has sort of set in. How do you, as a well-known LP, someone that people you as credible and, and you've got a voice. How, what do you think about the right size of VC firms today? When you speak to prospective GPs or portfolio GPs, what's the advice that you're giving them? Well, we use a very, to my earlier comment about not being quantif- considered quantitatively strong enough at Morgan Stanley, we are now considered a quantitative shop, which I find incredibly amusing every day. But what we do is incredibly simple. We look at your fund and if you say you want to raise $100 million or $500 or $1 billion, and we say, what is the portfolio strategy such that this needs to be a 3x net fund? What size check are you writing? What's your ownership? Whack your ownership to some percentage, assuming at exit and what size exit needs to occur. And that math is really quite simple. And that tells you exactly what the potential, there's no, there's no guarantee, but it gives you a sense of the statistical possibility of it. And that's what we use to look at funds. And we underwrite to a three X net. So the reason why we focus on series A and seed is because we, we underwrite the series A to a three X. And if you want to show me a growth fund, that could be a three X. I'm open to the conversation. It just then means the, the, the people before you have to be making that much more money potentially in that stack. And historically, that doesn't seem to play out. But that's that's how we do things. And it's it's no different. Like we've done that since day one. It's the, I think the consistency of process is an important contributor to having a successful program. It's a bit squishy to draw the line of sight as to why. But if you keep moving your metrics as to how you want to look at something, I think your outcomes will vary as well. And does that also vary by thematic slash geography? So do you put aside money where you go would invest 10% of our fund in Europe and then we'll have 2% in AI-focused funds? Is that breakdown something you generally do? We do have a geographical allocation in mind. So we are roughly speaking 70% US, 25-ish Europe, 5% Israel. We started that from the beginning thinking these were major tech centers and also looking at the size of our team and saying, what can we actually cover? So it's not that we're unaware that there's technology centers in the rest of the world, 
you could only we only get 24 hours in our day and that's what we thought we could we could manage outside of that every dollar competes and we did that purposefully because we think you then get the best responses versus saying and there, but there are that to what you're asking though is there are different technologies will have different growth paths yeah right so like deep tech isn't going to look like a SaaS startup mm. and you're that means you might look at the fund and understand how the revenues work and when the write-ups are but that doesn't mean to say we're going to say oh well it's okay if it's only a 1x fund because they're doing xyz like we just we just can't allocate to them is the answer and that's maybe a loss for us but that's how we work yeah i want to spend some time on emerging managers and and get to a recent announcement you've made in a second as well and how how does sapphire decide portfolio construction around new managers versus either re-upping on existing managers or investing in new managers? And also, how do you go, sorry, we can't support your next fund? Again, I know there's not probably not a clear-cut answer to that, but if you just talk about your thinking, what should GPs be aware of when they, maybe from two angles, one from a first-time manager when they come present to you, and also if someone's coming to you for the second or third fund, how do you differentiate the two internally from a diligence perspective? Um, we put everybody, so everybody gets looked at with the same lens of, could this be a 3X or a 5X fund? So consider that consistent. From day one of our firm, we've always thought that being able to welcome net new additions to our portfolio, if not, is, well, ideally annually. And some years, I'm less fewer than others, but the goal is always some. Um, was important because you need to have some, we do believe in the importance of emerging managers in your portfolio construction. And sometimes there is a, a reboot of a existing fund and that can be something different, or you can get allocation into an existing fund that you couldn't have before. So we're always open to the new. We did that structurally. The first time fund managers, what I would say is we are highly unlikely to invest in a first time investor. And I'm differentiating that from a first-time fund, which doesn't mean to say if you've been a very active scout or even potentially a very active angel that could make you into more of a first-time manager than a first-time investor. But if you've never managed somebody else's money, it's just a very big jump to go because we'll need people to be audited. We need people to do quarterly reports. There's just like some aspects of the business that people, there's a reason why most first funds really are done with sort of a friends of family, angel list, like all these new things that are out there, VCs as LPs, to sort of get that muscle going, figure out who they are before they start bringing on institutional capital. Some people get there much faster. Some people want to learn differently. It's all good, but I, I would give that as a first advice. And we we do offer a fair amount of information because what's what's challenging when the f- newer managers pitch and they haven't thought about some of these questions it, it it's just not the right time for them, right? Because if you, do you know what I mean? If you want to run your angel list fund, just picking an example and do mm-hmm. deals and not have to deal with anything on the other side of it, that is an awesome, awesome time. Like there's no reason not to do that, but you probably don't want an LP that's going to ask for a bunch of other time and attention. And maybe you do, maybe you don't, and maybe there's a good overlap, but we'll just tell people like, think about these things because we will want to understand how you do this. And if you don't want to do it, but have a really strong track record and have figured it out, that works too. But the in-between is a tough one. So I'd say typically fund ones don't institutionalize as much as people think they do because we only read about the ones that do. And there's probably hundreds behind them that don't. So Mm. I think sometimes it's easy to believe the one story you read in the media and not Mm. realize that there's a lot of other stuff going on. And by fund two and fund three, you have a body of work to talk to and you can organize it and then understand that. And we 
actually on our website now we publish a a, a blog post one of our past colleagues wrote about what we look for in a data room. Like we just don't think mm. these things are mysteries. We put out there what we think we like in a deck. Like again, these shouldn't be the gatekeeping portions of it. Mm. Open LP, absolutely. I think it's really important. Well, one thing that Simil Shah, who was recently on a podcast, he spoke about is the value of pre-marketing. And 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 I think founders do this with us VCs where I actually said there's two ways to it because CRMs come in the way sometimes where the founder gets into a VC's uh, pipeline too early, they get recorded in the CRM, and then you you can only come back generally three, six months later and have a catch up and, and explain what's different this time. How do you think about that with GPs, whether they're emerging GPs or established GPs and they come into your wheelhouse? Do you like them to build a relationship before they officially start fundraising? Or would you prefer they come pitch to you when they've got a pitch deck and a data room and everything's buttoned up? Oh, I think I like both at different times, which is I appreciate not a wildly <laughs> helpful answer. I think that the, the biggest gate gating factor we have is we all only have 24 hours in a day. And I think there's something like 2,000 funds in market or whatever that terrifyingly large number is. So there's no way we can meet with everybody if we wanted to. So we have to use some filters. So I, we do like being told of things in advance in general. Sometimes we can't meet with everybody, but the this is why we often we ask for a deck or some way of understanding who they are, because if what they're doing and where we can add aren't going to align, we, we do want to let people know as soon as possible, because what's harder is when people want to come in. I really struggle with this. So I say this all the time. If someone says, hey, I want to tell you what I'm doing. Can we meet? I'm like, I need you to tell me more because... <laughs> What if you're doing a growth stage biotech fund in Brazil? Like we're not doing that. And like, do, do you know what I mean? So I think, I think GPs, and maybe this works for some GPs with CEOs, but I think we're pretty mm -hmm. clear on the, like, tell us what you're doing. Give us as much information as you can so we can digest it. And also asking for people's patience of it might not be me. A lot of folks who are in the Bay area. We have teammates in the Bay area. Maybe it's them. Maybe it's me because I'm traveling just being a little fluid on who meets when and where. We do sign up for a lot of GPs newsletters. We try to join virtual webinars. So we try to get out there, but also just appreciating when we ask for information, like it's really actually sharing because that helps us to then be like, oh, this is actually something that's going to align. And then we can dig in and spend more time in person. Mm -hmm. and, and again, there's no one right answer. So I think anyone listening don't feel like there's one answer and then they contact you after that. So, and then maybe a technical question. Don't worry, question they're not going to listen. I get this. Oh, I heard you say you want to hear from people. Can we talk? And I'm like, great. Here's the landing page. Send me the deck. <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe a technical follow-up question on that, Beezer, is GP commit. I, I talk to friends and colleagues about this a lot where this often limits fund one and fund two managers sometimes who haven't come from a big previous founder exit or haven't worked at a Facebook in the early days. And they just don't have that personal wealth. And I think Michael Kim and I spoke about this on the podcast and he said, yeah, maybe it should be a percentage of personal wealth, not percentage of the funds total amount. How do you, how does Sapphire look at that in terms of GP commit? Is that something that's important to you as part of diligence? It's important. I'm in the Michael camp of it's important to understand what it means to the GP. And I don't, I wouldn't be able to pick a certain percentage because it also meant I, I I worry about the same things you worry about that you shouldn't only be able to be a VC because you come from some level of wealth, be it you created, family created. That's too much of a gatekeeper. 
for new entrants into the market. So what does the GP commit represent to the individual and understanding that? And in that context, we're we're happy to have the conversation. And we've people have used past investments and put them in as part of their GP commit. Like there's a range of things. And I'm not entirely sure who's taken over this business from SVB, but in the US, you can also use some level of banking instruments to also help. But mm-hmm. I think it's a challenge and I think it's kept a lot of diversity out of the industry. And you know, so we work with a fee and carry system at Sapphire. And so we understand what it means to have a GP commit and it it can get really expensive. Okay. So you've got one as well for yourself. So you can mm-hmm. empathize mm-hmm. with the oh, VC. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I can pay the nanny or I can make my GP commit, right? Or I can, you know, pay my rent or whatever, whatever the person's choosing around, right? Mm-hmm. The the probably next point in that, which you and I spoke on email, is I know you've been doing some research around fund graduation rates and specifically how many go from a fund one to a fund three, four, and beyond. And what does it take? What are those fundamentals that make it work. And if we just look at your portfolio, I know you've done this piece of work. So depending on how much you can share, what have been some of the takeaways on that, that you think people aren't thinking about when it comes to those graduation rates? Because I heard you recently talk on a podcast also about that every legendary fund was once a fund one, which sounds so simple, but people forget that. People think Sequoia always started as fund five, but no, uh, Doug Leone and, 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 and Don Valentine were upsets at, at one point in the 80s and 90s. So yeah, a rounded question, but how, what, what, what have you found in your research around graduation rates and what's limited fund progression? Well, the overall industry rates are pretty bad. I'm trying to think of a nicer word. So, so from people want to get to an, to being an established fund for multiple reasons. One, which is may or may not be the most important is that there's a number of LPs out there that only invest fund four and on. And we can talk about why, but just taking that as it is, I think a lot of funds try to get to the fund four because it unlocks a different pool of capital. But the graduation rate, since we looked at starting in 1995, is about 17%. And that is because there's so many fund ones that break and don't get to fund two or fund three. The breakage rates from one to two is pretty big, which probably is painful. But also, if it's not the right fit and it's not working and they don't want to do it or the world changes, I don't think anyone should be trapped in a job they don't like. So that maybe that's a very healthy thing. I don't know. And I suspect historically, it's going to look different from... 2020 to 2024, because I think the VCs coming in as LPs are changing the paradigm a little bit as far as how many fund ones get to fund two, because you can stand up. It used to be you had to have wealthy friends or connections to be able to raise your fund one, your fund two, and fund three. And now you have VCs coming in and you can raise a 20 to $40 million fund from this different LP base. It just didn't exist before. It exists for deal sourcing, which is different. So that's my big caveat. We've seen a remarkably higher graduation rate in our portfolio. And I think that's partially, I would like to believe it's based on, you know, some level of input from the LP, but I also think there's a lot of savvy from the GP and how they're putting together their business. And if you, if you're thinking through your capital base at the same time and saying like, well, who's on my LPAC, how am I going to leverage them? How am I going to use them for introductions? How am I going to get insights? Again, like the important job is the picking of the companies and the, and the hardest work is done by the CEOs. But I think some of the fundraising capabilities is also, it's not, it's not without paying attention to, because there's a little bit of the flywheel that has to start. And there is this big question in venture, it's in private equity as well. But the big question in venture is always like the persistency of returns. 
And if once you start getting good returns, whatever that being defined as, then like they will follow. And that's why you'll see LPs sort of, if you believe in that, you always try to jam into the funds that are having some performance. And the question is, how do you get the perception of that performance in the first few funds? And it's always by like picking companies that are well-known and getting that going on and then attracting the right capital base. And so I think a lot of funds that understand the business of that can do well, but part which doesn't which always includes a part of picking up companies. It's very, very hard to get that kind of lift off if the companies are are you aren't picking well. I'm trying to find a nice way to say it, but if you're not picking well, then it's just very hard. Hmm. Does that answer your I, question? I might not have gotten to a specifics that you were thinking of. Yeah, There's I think the point is the point is there is no clear cut answer because if there was, we'd all be perfect fund managers, right? <laughs> it would all graduate and get perfect results. Correct. Correct. And I think there's the other part that always amazes me is there's only, there's some people will come to me and I'll be like, oh, here's my advice. And, I, and then they'll find an LP who's like 180 degrees on the other side of it. Because some LPs, and, and I'm always like, oh, this is so intriguing. And I can appreciate why it's very confusing for GPs. Like there's, L, there's LPs, they'll be like, I'm not really looking for the fund return. Like R3X, they're like, that's, that's lovely, but that's not what I'm choosing for. I'm choosing because I want to do individual deals. And that can be more of a family office dynamic or a very large private equity buyout dynamic. And so like, they're going to have an LP that's going to give them a completely different information. Mm-hmm. Or I need to write a $50 million check. So would you please raise a $400 million fund where I'm like, mm, your model really works best at 250. And they're like, yeah, but I've got this really big check that wants to come in. Yeah, totally. Totally. I think the, the point you've said about getting into well-known companies or well-known perspective companies because they often paper markups is is a really interesting one because uh, I was talking recently to an LP friend and he said to me he said Vidit yeah if you can get into some well-known logos and if you can show that for your for your fund that'll really give me conviction for my IC and I said to him I said that's really interesting because don't you want me to be contrarian and, and find deals that others are not like if I'm looking at deals that everyone else is how am I different? Like, why would my portfolio be different to five other fund managers that you've already backed? So maybe a similar question. And again, I'm sure there's no right answer, but how do you look at that? Because again, emerging manager, they've got to go against the grain to get those results. Whereas if they back the same AI companies that Sequoia is backing or Benchmark's backing, they probably can't get ownership in that company either because they're competing on valuation and they're competing on track record and they're competing on value add. What advice again do you give to maybe second time fund managers who have some firepower financially around being contrarian, but still having the LPs backing? I would start a slightly different spot, which is you need to know what game you're in as a VC. And if you don't know it, try to figure it out because there is a game which says, I'm going to be the small seed fund that will get a piece of the Sequoia companies. And then for an LP who can't get into the Sequoia companies, I can do this fund as a proxy. Like that's a, that's a, that's a thing, right? It's not your contrarian thing, but it's a thing. Or you're going to do the, and I give credit to Union Square, like they do their thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then every fund, Fred's blogged about this. I'm saying all this so the compliance people will be happy. Like every fund ends up having some unicorn or something. And people are like, oh, I didn't see it coming. And they were like, yes, it took eight years. But they've been contrarian and right, and that's incredibly powerful. So you're correct. If you're an LP and you're looking at somebody's fund too, you might not be able to connect those dots quite yet. But I'll then go to you and I'll say, well, why did you pick this company? Tell me about it. What's your thesis? Why this entrepreneur? What was going on? What did you see? How competitive was it? And if you were like, oh, it wasn't competitive because no one else was lining up the dots this way, 
And therefore, I was able to get this ownership of this valuation. That doesn't mean that's a negative, right? And then in two years, when you come back and I say, well, how's the company doing? And you're like, oh, it's playing out. The thesis is playing out in this way. Or now Sequoia has realized the error of their ways and they're trying to get in or whoever the right investor is for your company. That's also a very powerful signal. So we spend a lot of time understanding why people are selecting and then obviously talking to CEOs to understand, well, what's well, how are they compiling their cap table and how are they making the choices? Because you said this a couple of times, there is no one right answer, mm. right? But you need to know what game you're playing and then how it works. And what, and credit to Mike Maples, your fund size is your strategy. And like, mm. as long as people know these things, that's what we're listening for. It's when people are a little bit more like, oh, I'm just going to enter the fray and try to put my all in on green. And you're like, mm, mm. Mm. that might work in a bull market for about 10 months. Yeah, maybe even yeah. less. Like, <laughs> <laughs> completely. It's not completely. It's not a repeatable, differentiable strategy. Mm. Uh, but but to be fair, people are in this game for different reasons. And now one of the things I love about it is you can be, and you can use all these different ways of being a VC to be in it. But that doesn't mean to say you should always want the same kind of institutional capital. And I think that's where people get confused. Mm. Like we'll get pitch decks that say we only we take all these great operators and our big value add is we have all these operators and our LPs are only operators. And I'm like, I don't understand why you're asking me mm. now to invest. I mean, it's and a compliment you, that they think you're an operator, but... <laughs> no, I think they just didn't update the deck. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Which is fine. That's just part of the institutional journey, but then update the deck and say, hey, listen, I'm really interested in like, because that's great. And we've seen people that do that too. Like there's definitely funds out there that have very important operators in them, but also have institutional capital. And I like being alongside operators because they're really interesting. And so, but I would say just be able to speak to it. So you're not people, if I have to spend too much time emailing back and forth to say, I don't understand, what are you doing? I don't understand. What are you doing? Mm. Maybe we need to get on the phone or maybe it's just not clear. And in markets like this, where fundraising is harder, I, I just advocate for the clarity. Mm-hmm. You mentioned markets being harder to fundraise. There was an announcement recently that Sapphire made about CalSTRS and you are wanting to support emerging managers and new managers. And I think you've written a direct listeners to your LinkedIn post and your Twitter post, and there was a TechCrunch article recently as well. Do you want to summarize your thinking on that? And was that something that you've been planning for a while or is this something more new again, being contrarian where you want to go, you want to zig with the, when the others are zagging and they're backing third or fourth time fund managers? Well, we've, we've always believed in the power of emerging managers and having them as part of your portfolio. So that's been true since day one. We really do love being able to have a positive message in this tough market. So the timing of it was just really awesome serendipity. Um, we'd known Calsters for a while and admired their work. What I don't think people know enough of, so I'm just going to keep saying it, is that they've been long, they've been supporters of emerging managers for decades. The work that we did, we we have taken on a new program to invest in US, I'm going to say it six times because I think it's confusing, but we're, the Calsters mandate is just for, for US emerging managers, for better or for worse. But as part of taking over the go forward portion of this, we also have taken over the management of five existing funds, which are all emerging managers. Some of them have private equity, some of them have health care. But the go forward, CalSTRS wanted to focus with us on just on venture. And they're going to do the other work with other people that specialize in those areas. But even prior to this mandate that we've taken over, CalSTRS has been doing emerging managers, I think, since the early 90s. So big props to them. Like I said, we'd known them. They were looking at changing who the manager of these assets were. And so we met at a time that 
sometimes serendipity is just incredibly powerful. And I love those moments. And this was one of those moments. We had long wanted to do more. We run a pretty disciplined program here where we try to invest, I should say it technically correctly. We try to commit the same amount of dollars per year. And so doing that means if you want to do more emerging managers, you have to just write your checks smaller and smaller. And that didn't feel to be the right solve for us. So when this opportunity presented itself, we were really excited and and are excited to do more with US emerging managers. We like all emerging managers, but this mandates for the US. So does that mean Calsters are an LP in Sapphire? Like what's that economic relationship? Correct. So so yeah. this program, Calsters is the only LP. I want to zoom out and talk about a couple of things about the landscape or even about your journey. And 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 she actually mentioned this. He said, ask Pisa, who are some of those LPs that she respects? So like if you had to visualize a Hall of Fame LP room and let's say you've got one chair and there's four other chairs, who would you want to be in a room with that you consider Hall of Fame LPs? Well, I never got to work with Mr. Swenson from Yale, but obviously he would be interesting to hear from. I have been a longtime fan of Kim Liu, who is currently at Columbia. She's been gracious enough to spend time with me and let me pick her brains. I think she is pretty extraordinary. Also, Anne Martin from Wesleyan. I'm a Wesleyan grad. I was not a student when Wesley- when Anne is now the CIO, but I have since had the pleasure of being able to work with her too. I'm an advisor to the investment committee now, and I really respect the work that she does and how she does it. So big fans there. Uh, we have so many friends like Chris Duvos and I have been sort of like brothers and sisters in LP land for a while. And I, yes, there's a number. There's, I, I feel like my, my fear is I'm going to start naming names and I'm not going to say somebody and that's going to be bad uh, because I really do. I really do respect a full range of LPs and how they do it. Even if we don't always end up in the same funds Shout out to David Clark from Vencap. He just tweeted his mm. some of his portfolio stats to underscore power laws. We don't get to overlap with him as much as I'd like, but really appreciate how he shows up, right? We mm. do we co-invest with Michael Kim at Sandana. We work with other folks at Stepstone, with Plexo. We work, we try, we work across a range because when we're if we're starting with not all of our managers, but when we do start with emerging managers, one of the things we do like to be active with them on is as we can be helpful making introductions or thinking through the construction of their LP base, because you will see funds going through an institutionalization and are bringing in different size checks and then getting to work with people's great. And there's a fund of funds, there's endowments, there's foundations. So it's we spend a, I spend a lot of time trying to meet with other LPs and learning from them and comparing notes and it's it's helpful. The f- good folks at Chicago, there's a tons. I'm going to mm-hmm. err and not mention yeah. somebody and it's going to be bad. <laughs> no, thank you for answering that. I realized I put you on the spot and didn't give you that in the prep. So thank you for giving us, giving us an answer. L- last question before we move to final sprint is our audience is quite global. And, and you mentioned earlier about investing in emerging markets. What's that approach there? Like, I guess there's two kinds there. Do you try and allocate a percentage of your strategies in a particular geo, or is it more of a bottoms-up approach where you identify individual managers that have structural advantages regardless of strategy or geo in some of those emerging markets? Like, I would say we sort of art-scienced it from the beginning when we came up with a 70-25-5, and then maybe it was 70-2010, US, Europe, Israel. So the smaller dollars being in Israel. And then over COVID, we realized a lot of the US managers were pushing more and more internationally. So part of our updated math is we look at it, 
we keep those overall numbers in mind, but we we have had to sort of rebalance in different places based on what we're looking for is underlying exposure in companies. So if we're suddenly getting a lot of exposure in, in different areas, if the managers in the US are suddenly doing all Israel, which they're not, but we definitely have some in enterprise that have pushed in or cybersecurity, we're conscious of that as part of our overall portfolio allocation. And doesn't mean to say we don't appreciate the people in the countries doing the work too, but we have to we have to run the math because otherwise you're out of balance and you don't know it. Um, and I think my my personal guess is most people that were experiencing life on Zoom and the, the boundarylessness of geography now that they have to fly to go where they are, the folks that were doing it before COVID will keep doing it. Mm. And the folks that started during COVID, if they didn't move there, will probably pull back a little bit because it's I, I travel a lot because it's important for me to see what it looks like on the ground. I'm not as good of an investor if I can't. And I can I know what the wear and tear of that feels like. And I mm. just so I, I appreciate why people may or may not be doing it is my point. Mm-hmm. Interesting one. Let's let's uh, cover that. It's actually it's interesting because I went down the technical part of LP land. What's been the biggest learning or you could call it a magic moment, the biggest learning you've had in your time at Sapphire because as you mentioned you've been in this industry for for a, for a while and you've seen it, but you've been at Sapphire over a decade. Is there a, a painful learning or a, or a magic moment that stands out that taught you a lot? I wish I I couldn't have started this so much earlier because I don't think I would have been as prepared. I wish I could have started being an LP at like age 20. I look at these kids. Really? A lot of, well, it's a long run, right? If it takes 10 or 15 years for a fund to go through a cycle, as an LP, people always ask like, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, they're on fund too. And they're three years old. I, I mean, mm. it's early. And so like, you can see things like when you're asking me, how do these funds do things? And you're like, well, I've seen some of our portfolio now for over a decade, but they were in a bull market. So is my answer going to be different? I hope we're back in a bull market. There's so much more fun, right? <laughs> But, you know, another decade from now, what other learnings will be had? And we we hire, when we hire associates, we tend to hire out of universities and places that will do a, a, a post-undergraduate rotation through an endowment, right? So they're, they basically made the decision to be at least try being an LP right after college. And I just think about like, oh my God, what an advantage. That's amazing. I wish I wish I knew enough to have done this when I was 22. But then I was like, oh, but I love these other things that I did. So, but I really, I really do love the work that I do. And I feel I remember when I when Nino hired me and I was like, this is gonna be kind of crazy. Like this is my life's work. And I get to go do it for the next X number of years. And maybe some people get there faster than I did by 40. But I was like, this is pretty awesome. So I, I really do love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same in VC land. It's a long feedback cycle. It's a long journey. You don't know if you're good at it. You don't know if you're going anywhere. You're just looking at those dashboard numbers and you're hoping it goes somewhere. So, Yes. And I, the LP's I, watching your dashboard three months later because we, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I am conscious of your time, Bezos. So I want to move to final rapid fire sprint. Is there one non-work investment you've made that you consider the best in your life? Am I allowed to say my child? Does that count? Totally. I know everyone an says investment. a partner. That's, it's an investment of time, energy, your body. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah, my son's 15. And if I could clone him, people always ask me if I have twins because I speak about him like there's multiples of him. And I think it's just because i he's just such a cool person. Like you get what you get. And I just feel so lucky I got a good one. He's awesome. And, and, and you're telling him to be an LP in five years at 20? Is that it? <laughs> no, although maybe I should. I fear if I tell him what to do, I mean, he's got half my DNA. I fear yeah. if I tell him that, he'd be like, no, mom. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> is there one thing you want to learn in the next six months? That's a tough one because I'm on a plane the next five, the next six weeks. So I feel like my six months is going to be spent traveling. But what I'm looking forward to learning is sort of like relearning what's going on in different geographies. I'm ex really excited to get another refresh of what's what it feels like because the world sort of resettled post-COVID. But mm. longer, longer term, when my son's in college, I want to get back into scuba diving. Oh, so good. So good. Is there one person or quote that inspires you today? Well, this is a very recency bias quote, but I've been contemplating the Billie Jean King quote about pressure as a privilege. Because if you're watching the US Open, the players all come out and like rereading her history and all those parts. And it's just, just, she was pretty incredible. I mean, she still is pretty incredible, but what she did was amazing. And just appreciating that pressure as a privilege, like there's definitely days when we're all manic and you're like, oh, this is really good. Like, mm, mm. That's, that's a good reminder. Mm. And last one, is there one hobby you do each week to be at your best mentally and physically? Uh, ooh, I'm supposed to say I exercise, and I meditate and I do all these things. <laughs> I don't know, man. I hug my son. <laughs> so you're not playing pickleball. So you're not playing pickleball no. and having your green smoothie yeah. every morning. And <laughs> No, no. So we try to get seven hours of sleep. My son runs cross country. <laughs> so I get him to school by 630 in the morning and I'm in Austin. So it's this is the second week of non hundred degree weather, but we had hundred degree weather for like three months. So it's like, wow. I guess it's probably 95 right now, which is cool. So I can go for a walk and exercise in the morning at seven and it's glorious because it's like 80 degrees and really pretty. So that's, mm. that gets me ready for the day. Mm -hmm. So good. Well, that brings us to the finish line. Beza Clarkson, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, there you have it. That's my conversation with Beza Glaxon. I loved unpacking each of Beza's early career influences and career decisions. And I hope you enjoyed our demystification of the VC ecosystem and how a globally recognized LP in Sapphire works with funds in the US and internationally. I hope you enjoyed this episode 145. And as always, let me know your thoughts on the conversation, all my contact details in the show notes. I'll catch you soon.